0: This morning's scripture comes to us from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, found in chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, and the version we read this morning comes from the New Living Translation. Let me remind you now, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I am not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God, who was working through me by his grace. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God.
1: Let us pray. Oh Lord, open our spiritual eyes and ears and hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit that as your word is proclaimed today, each of us may hear with deep joy and respond in faithful, loving service. To all you have to say to us today, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're continuing um, in the season of Easter this morning, and we'll do so again next Sunday morning, so we're staying with the theme of resurrection during this Easter season in the um, liturgical and church calendar. This morning, with apologies to all the English teachers here today, the message is entitled Ruts Ain't Roots. Somebody said just a few minutes ago, yeah, you're, you're uh, giving evidence of your Mississippi upbringing here, but ruts ain't roots. Um, so I want to read a paraphrased version. This is a paraphrased version of 1 Corinthians 15, which is Paul's resurrection chapter in his epistles. So it's a paraphrased version of the one that Reverend Kim shared just a few moments ago. I want to call you back to the roots of the good news... ...which I first gave to you... ...which you received and upon which your faith rests. You are made whole. You are saved by these roots... ...unless you become rutted in meaningless trifles. Of first importance is this. Christ died for our sins. Secondly, He was buried for three days... ...and God raised Him up. Finally, He was seen by Peter and the apostles... ...and many other believers... Last of all, he appeared to me, although I am unworthy of the honor. I am like an illegitimate child born into the family of God because I persecuted God's people, yet, by the grace of God, I am what I am today. That's where I got the title this morning, Ruts Ain't Roots, from that paraphrased version. One of the easiest things to do in life is to forget that ruts ain't roots. We are forever confusing the life-giving source of our strength, the roots with, which nourish, nourish and give us meaning with ruts, doing the same old, same old without ever asking why. You know, you can see examples of this all over. I, I'm not going to give any examples, but in the political, governmental arena, there are examples of how we cut the life-giving root and get rutted in our relationships, our significant relationships, our families, marriages, we can do that but nowhere is it easier to forget that ruts ain't roots than in our spiritual lives in our relationship with god we are forever cutting the roots that give us life and make us stand against the wind when the storms blow in we are forever cutting those and falling into ruts you see ruts are the deep or excuse me roots rather are the deep sources from which we draw real strength Ruts, on the other hand, are the deep grooves left by our predecessors that can choke off life. I I learned to drive on red clay country roads in the river bottoms of central Mississippi. If you learn to drive at all, you learn to drive on muddy roads. The cardinal rule of driving in the mud was stay in the ruts. You held the steering wheel loosely enough to allow the wheels to turn with the ruts, yet firmly enough to keep them from jumping out of the ruts and maybe even off the road. It is a delicate balancing process when you're driving in the ruts, knowing just how to handle and and navigate through that. But we often do life that way. We just hold the steering wheel just enough to follow the ruts until sometimes the ruts run us right off into the bog. And that's exactly Paul's point when he wrote to the Christians at Corinth. He had given them, he said, the life-giving roots of the gospel. The good news, the truth that sets us free. And they had fallen into the ruts. So he's calling them back to the roots which give us life. In this passage, in fact, Paul gives three life-giving roots that nourish and strengthen our souls. And he is saying, in essence, ruts ain't roots. Remember that. And I say, if your life is off the rails, make sure you know the difference between ruts and roots. If you're tracking in the ruts headed for the bog, um, that's, that's one story. But if you're drawing deep from the taproot of life, that is quite another. So I want to give you three life-giving roots that are lifted up in this passage. And then I want to talk about how we exchange that or trade that in for uh, a meaningless rut, if you will. So the first life-giving root that Paul gives us is the root of redemption. Now, I know that is a big religious-sounding word, but I'd like to use a very simple and a very practical definition of that word. How many of you, now we're, you're going to date yourself for sure, I would ask you to lift your hands if you're able. How many of you have ever redeemed green stamps? See, I knew this was going to just be a dividing line, so some of you have no clue what we're talking about. Um, By the way, in my hometown of Vicksburg, Mississippi, they actually had a redemption center. That's what it was called when you took the green stamps down to the redemption center, and you could trade in the green stamps that you got when you purchased groceries at the local store like Jitney Jungle and Piggly Wiggly. How's that for grocery store names? Those were, the, those were the big chains in my hometown. And you, they would give you green stamps. And then if you could put those in books and actually take your green stamp books in and buy things like toasters, hair dryers, ashtrays, I mean anything. It was like a little mini store where you could trade in the green stamps. So when you say you redeem such things, you mean you're utilizing it for its intended purpose, whether it's a green stamp, book of green stamps or a coupon or a ticket. You redeem those things by utilizing them for its intended purpose. You're using that coupon or ticket or stamp as they were meant to be used. And I like that particular definition for redemption because that is precisely what God offers to do for every one of us in Jesus. In Christ, God promises that we can reach our full intended purpose In God's kingdom, our potential, our destiny, our purpose is fulfilled when we surrender to God's greater design on our lives, God's loving design on our life. We become what we were intended to be as we place our plans in the hands of God. Now, that implies, by the way, that that God is always wanting to work out that gracious purpose, that loving purpose in our lives Something we have a difficult time accepting. One of my favorite devotional writers in one of his books in The Grip of Grace has a wonderful chapter entitled, What We Really Want to Know. What We Really Want to Know. And in this chapter, the author focuses on one single question that seems to deal with the central question we all have in life. And here's the question. It actually comes from a passage of Scripture from the Apostle Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the central question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Did you notice the question is not, who can be against us? That's not the question. As Paul frames the question, it is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I want you to get that. If God is for us, God is for us. God is for us. Redemption means that God is for us and that God is always seeking to work out God's gracious and loving purpose in our lives. That's what Paul means when he says Christ died for us. We know that God is for us because Christ died for us. We know that God wants only what's best for us because Christ gave his life for us. We know that God wants to work out a greater purpose in our lives because Christ died for us. God seeks to lift us above our narrowness and our sinfulness, our selfishness, to give us a sense of purpose and peace, to use us for a noble cause, to make us into everything we were meant to be, to redeem us. That's the first life-giving root, redemption. But what have we done? we often trade it in for the rut of retribution. We just simply can't believe that God really is for us. So we keep, keep injecting retribution into the gospel message. You don't, you, you don't have to read too far between the lines when you hear some gospel messengers or some preachers uh, in the religious marketplace to hear this subtle message, God's out to get you. You'll hear that, this subtle threat of retribution and not the promise of redemption. One of my favorite readings from history is George Bernard Shaw, who claimed to be an atheist. He was invited by a group of conservative British, very conservative British clergymen to come and speak to them about why he, in fact, was an atheist. The place was packed with what Shaw called hellfire and brimstoners and and he walked up to the front of the crowd and pulled a pocket watch from his vest. And this is going to sound a little harsh, but this is the way the interchange went. He said, if the God you preach exists, then I dare that God to strike me dead in the next 30 seconds. And then he looked intently at the stopwatch for 30 seconds, and the place was absolutely hushed. And, and uh, I'm sure some of the ministers, by the way, given you know, their perspective on religious life might have been saying under their breath, get him, God, get him. And when the 30 seconds passed, Shaw put his watch back in his pocket and he said, I just disproved the God you preach. And I proved the God that Jesus preached. And then he added this as an explanation. Jesus spoke of a God who does not have to prove his existence by rubbing out insignificant mortals like you and me. If that's atheism, then I'm an atheist. And then he turned and walked out of the hall. I have to say, I agree with George Bernard Shaw. God is out to get us all right, but not like a predator is out to get its prey but like a lover out to win the object of their desire. God is for us, not against us. John Killinger, one of my favorite preachers, said Jesus came into the world to cure God of a bad reputation. And I think that's largely true. The most revolutionary thing maybe that Jesus ever said about God was describing God as a loving Father. Remember the stories of Jesus? As a loving father, a good father, Jesus came to affirm by the life he lived and by the death he died that God is for us. God wants to redeem our lives and make them count for something and we should never trade that deep life-giving root in for the rut of retribution. The second root Paul gives us is the root of resurrection. And when Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus, he's basically affirming that we can experience the life that lays out there ahead in some great measure today. We can experience the life to come in moments of this life now. Paul is not just saying that God offers something better in the next life than what we now experience in this one. Rather, he is saying that our lives can be transformed now if we are willing to die to ourselves. ...to our old patterns of living, to our old ways of thinking, to, to our old lives... ...in order to be raised to a new quality of life. In fact, someone suggested that Paul pretty much had a this-worldly bias in his preaching. And I think that's true, but we miss it so much. That is to say, he wants us to see how the power of Christ's resurrection can enable... ...and empower us to live fully, not just in the future life... but now. Paul is saying that we can experience a whole new level of living an entirely different and better quality, a resurrected life because of the resurrection of Christ. Life can be better now because of what Christ has done for us. But we keep trading in the root of resurrection for the root of what we might call religion light. That's L-I-T-E, religion light. We don't want to die in order to live Paul, did you notice in the text Paul said that Jesus was crucified and buried and he makes a point buried for three days buried for three days he wants you to know that Jesus was not in a coma or something he was really dead dead, graveyard dead and yet This is the affirmation that Paul makes. And yet God raised him up. That means that resurrection is for us too if we are willing to die to ourselves and let the new life of Christ arise in us. But we, especially in this culture like instant gratification, many people no longer want to wait for anything. Someone suggested we've gone from give me liberty or or give me death to give me liberty to give me. I mean, we no longer want to die in order to live. We no longer want to wait for anything, work for anything. We, we don't want to die to our selfishness, our stuff, our greed. Religion light is what we trade in for the great message of resurrection. The promise and hope of the resurrection is that we can be raised to a whole new quality of living right now. And we can begin now again. We can begin again now if we're willing to die to the old life we once knew. One of my favorite stories is of English philosopher Huxley. One Sunday morning, he wandered down from his bedroom to the kitchen to get his own coffee because he knew that on Sunday morning, his beloved butler always went to church. His butler was a common, humble man with a deep and profound religious faith. And the butler just happened to be there, all dressed up, ready to go to church. And Huxley asked if he was willing to stay home from church. He said to the butler, I I just wonder if you would forget worship this morning and stay here. Have a cup of coffee with me. I want you to tell me why you believe in God. And the butler said, I can't do that, sir. You're a man of great intellect. I'm a commoner. I have little education. I'm a modest man. I could never argue with you about my faith and Huxley assured him I'm not going to argue with you about anything I just want you to explain to me why you believe tell me about your faith the butler agreed and then in very simple terms he talked about how at the age of 12 he held his dad's hand as his dad told him about the love of Jesus. He told about how he would often walk by the parlor in the evening and see his mom and dad on their knees together, praying. He spoke of the hymns they would sing and the hope that was in their hearts when tragedy struck or when hard times came. And when he finished, Huxley, with a winsome look in his eyes, said, I would give everything I have and all that I am to believe like that and the butler simply said sir that's what it will take but we keep trading in the root of resurrection for the rut of religion light we don't want to die to our old selves in order to really live and then finally The third root, which vitalizes Paul's faith, is the most repeated line of defense. The last line of defense for Paul. The source that he fell back on whenever he was cornered, uh, whenever he faced opposition, whenever he faced great difficulty, because it was the deepest and the surest root of all. He used it when he stood before judges and prosecutors And he uses it in our scripture lesson this morning from 1 Corinthians. The linchpin of Paul's faith was his first-hand personal encounter with the living Christ... Paul wants you to know that God was a recognizable reality in his life through the person of Jesus. Paul puts it this way, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, raised on the third day, he appeared to Peter, the twelve apostles, to James, five hundred other believers, and then he says, and then he appeared to me. Paul here is affirming that God is a recognizable reality in his life and that you and I can know God. We can have a real personal encounter with God through Jesus. Paul says for him that is the taproot of true religion, the bedrock of faith, the ultimate reality in life. Sometimes, you know, I'm asked by friends why I became a United Methodist. Linda was born and bred in the Methodist church. I was not. In fact, I wasn't born and bred in any church. I didn't have a church background, but I did pastor for 15 years in another denomination. And especially people in that denomination would often say, Fred, why are you becoming a United Methodist? And I would tell them that, you know what? I wanted to be connected to a body which in spite of all its warts and pimples, insists that God has no grandchildren, that each of us can come to know God in a personal and transforming way through Jesus Christ. That's what we believe as United Methodist, And that's the richness of our faith, and yet we trade that in for the rut of repetitive ritual. Have you ever noticed the devotion to motion that prevails in most denominations, or for that matter, religious circles, period? I mean, God wants us to have a real, vibrant, growing personal relationship, uh, but... We somehow keep trading that root in for the rut of empty motions and meaningless rituals. And we have good motives. We want to package our religious experience in a form which will help others meet God personally and help us to experience God and grow in faith. And rituals are important. In fact, I would suggest that no religion could last long without them. It's just unnecessary. But... When, when the actions and the rituals of our faith are learned by rote memory and the, uh, the, uh, and the real meaning behind them is forgotten, then we are in tragic danger of losing the very essence of our faith. Jim Moore, longtime pastor of St. Luke United Methodist Church in Houston, tells a great story about a church in Spain where parishioners always stopped crossed, bowed, crossed themselves at a certain point along this dingy wall outside of the church. No one knew just why this was an expected act of devotion in this local church, this parish. They just knew that their parents and their grandparents before them had done so, and so they continued the tradition. And then one day, some paint peeled off this dingy wall and behind it was revealed some beautiful colors. And upon further investigation, they discovered that there was this magnificent mural of Mary and the Christ child just underneath. Worshippers used to stop generations prior to admire the grace and the beauty of the painting, but the practice survived long after the real meaning of the act of worship was forgotten. And the same thing can happen to us. We can trade in this vital, growing relationship with a recognizable, present, and accounted for God. We can trade in our genuine life-giving acts of devotion and worship and service for the rut of repetitive, meaningless rituals that we have learned by rote. But the taproot of our faith remains a real relationship with a living God through the person of Jesus. So in closing, I want to say it's amazing how deeply rutted and entrapped we can become in life. Some time ago, I came across a very simple poem entitled An Autobiography in Five Chapters. Uh, To my knowledge, nobody knows um, to whom this piece is attributed, but it's just a splendid statement of how it's so easy to become rutted. Chapter 1. I walk down the street... There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost and helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. It isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I fall in. It's a habit. But this time, finally, my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. The roots that give us power are the root of redemption. God is for us and wants us to realize our divine purpose in life the root of resurrection if we are willing to die to our old lives we can experience a new and abundant one right now and the root of a real growing relationship with a living loving God through Jesus have you tapped into those life-giving roots or are you mired in the ruts of retribution instant easy light religion and repetitive ritual if you're stuck in the ruts, then maybe it's time for you to take a different street too. Amen.